Our scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we pray that you would be here with us today and that you would tend to your word, uh, that it might reach our hearts. And you would do whatever it takes, Lord, for us to hear uh, the good news that you have for us and that it might change us and make us new. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it, uh, it never feels good to be out of sorts with people that matter to us. And we all experience it. It's part of life. Uh, sometimes we get sideways with a neighbor or a coworker, and because of proximity, uh, that becomes a very terrible experience. Other times we get out of sorts with a very close friend and it's agonizing to our hearts. Uh, occasionally we get out of sorts with one of our parents. Some of you have been at odds with one of your folks for a long, long time. And I've heard that sometimes some people get out of sorts with their spouse. It's never happened in my house, uh, but I've heard that it happens. But maybe one of the worst is when you're out of sorts with one of your own children. You could feel a churning in your stomach. You could experience sleeplessness and anxiety. It, like it gnaws away at you from the inside because things aren't right with someone that it's important for you to be right with. And you want to get it resolved as quickly as possible. So you have to ask when things have gone so wrong, how are things going to be made right? You know, there is one relationship that is more important than all the rest. And that is our relationship with God, the one who made us. And as we've been looking at this letter to the Romans over the past few weeks, we've seen that things have gone wrong, real wrong between us and God. We're out of sorts with him. We're at odds with him. We're opposed to him. We're in rebellion against him. And as Paul writes in chapter one, verse 18, his wrath is against us. But now we come to verse 21 of chapter three, and there's a shift and it begins with these two words, but now. And by the way, if you want to learn how to read the Bible well, pay attention to the buts. 
the big buts of scripture, but now, but God, but in the fullness of time, they're all over the place. And reading the Bible will open up to you if you pay close attention. Paul says, but now God has disclosed a way to make things right. God has disclosed a way to make us right with him. How are things made right? And we read in verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that word justified is absolutely crucial to understand if you want to make any progress in the Christian life. Justified means to be declared righteous in his sight. And you want to know what that means for you? That means that it is possible for you to lay your head on your pillow tonight and know that you're right with him. Every religion has its variation on getting right with God or with the gods or with the universe, depending on the metaphysics. Uh, In Hinduism, you got to get good karma so that you can escape the cycle of samsara. In Buddhism, you need to follow the eightfold path and eventually you're going to achieve nirvana. In Islam, you need to live in full submission, perform the five pillars, and then you're going to get Allah's blessing. And by the way, we even have secular versions of this. We just psychologize the concept. And you know how it sounds? It sounds like this. Do the work. Do the work of self-care and self-analysis and self-betterment. But what Paul is telling us is that God has now revealed his righteousness, his way of making us right with him. And it is apart from the law, even though the law and the prophets testify to it. I don't know where you're coming from this morning, but you need to know that every religious outlook requires a righteous life. And Christianity is no different. But only Christianity provides one for us. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about this righteousness. I want to talk about why we need it. I want to talk about who provides it. I want to talk about how we receive it. And then I want to talk about the difference it makes. So we're going to talk about the need for it, the provision of it, the reception of it, and then the implications of it in our lives. And let me start first with the need. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time reviewing the last few weeks uh, because we've looked at this in detail. But Paul has spent 64 verses teasing this out. That we are a people who have decided to go our own way. That though we know God, we have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, unrighteousness, right? And we've gone our own way. We live in denial. And that denial has disordered our loves which has led to disordered lives. And even when we've chosen a religious pathway to try to sort things out, we end up, as Iron has pointed out over the past two weeks, critically judging and scrutinizing one another. And here's the summary that Paul gives in verse 23 of chapter 3. There is no distinction. Nobody's on the honor roll here, right? Nobody escapes uh, the verdict that has come down. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, your education level, your political viewpoint, even your moral convictions. The verdict is the same, guilty. 
And we need a righteousness to answer that. And by the way, it's no use saying, but we have God's law. He's told us what he wants us to do. Because as Paul has labored to point out last week at the very end, 19 and 20, and then now, the law points us to this righteousness, but it it does not provide it. Or to say it another way, the law won't save you, but it will show you that you need saving. Uh, One scholar put it like this. It's like uh, you're a defendant in court and you call a witness to the stand in your defense, but the witness agrees with the prosecution. That's like appealing to God's law to vindicate yourself. We need a righteousness that holds up under scrutiny. That's what we've been talking about uh, the past few weeks. Now, some of you might say right now, look, who, who cares? I'm not really a religious person. I'm here for the community. Why should I care about righteousness? That even seems like an archaic, ancient, primitive, you know, word that we're done with. But what I want to suggest to you is this. Righteousness isn't simply a religious problem created by religious people. It's a human problem. And you see it show up everywhere. So let's take this outside the realm of formal religion just for a second. And I think you're going to see this. Think about it this way. Our righteousness is what we present before an audience to receive a favorable verdict. And if you pay close attention, we're doing this all the time. What, what is Instagram, for instance? It is a presentation of the self before an audience to get the favorable verdict, the like. And some of us are invested very heavily in that outcome, which is why we are depressed and crushed when our post didn't get as many likes as we expected. Or how about this one? Resumes. What are resumes? They are presenting a polished version of ourselves to get the verdict of welcome from some organization or company that we want to work for. And you know, resumes, I say polished versions because no one puts on their resume failed English three times in high school, or I can be hard to work with. No, we put our best stuff on there because we're trying to present a righteousness before an audience that will get the favorable verdict. Or how about this one? Dating apps, curating a self online in the hopes that you're eventually going to get the verdict wanted forever. Everywhere you look, we're engaged in this kind of behavior. And all the while, what we see is that the world is filling up with anxiety and anger. There's anxiety because of that sense that it's not enough. I'm not enough. And in Silicon Valley, you know what we call that? Imposter syndrome. Is that feeling, maybe I really don't belong here. Maybe I snuck in. Maybe I'm going to be found out that I'm not as good as I've made people think I am. And it's gnawing away at the inside of us. But on the other hand, there's anger. Anger at the people getting in your way or getting what you want. And it manifests itself in what we call outrage culture. I want you to listen closely to this. Elizabeth Nolan Brown, a feminist scholar, reviewed research on social psychologists, from social psychologists, on outrage. And she said this, that outrage posts tend to assuage guilty feelings and confirm 
one's own sense of being a very good person. What's happening there? Trying to establish a righteousness. There's perceived inadequacies. There's hang-ups about things about yourself. And so you want to say the problem is them. And you want to direct your energy to that. Romans 1 told us that when we reject worshiping God as our creator, it's not that we stop worshiping. We start worshiping created things instead. We look to them to give us what only God can give us. So even if you're here and you reject God or not sure you believe in him, if you look at your life, you're going to find that you're constantly searching for a righteousness that will get you the approval and the favor. We need a righteousness. We need a righteousness that can hold up under scrutiny. But only Christianity tells us that we can actually be given one. And that's just the second thing I want to talk about. The provision of righteousness. Who provides this righteousness that we need? Well, the answer is staring us right in the face. God provides it. And I want you to notice, we are told in these verses that we can be justified in his sight, declared righteous in his sight, completely apart from anything we do. Justification is a legal term. Its opposite is condemnation. Both are verdicts that are passed over our life. And you know what the great good news of the gospel is? It's that the final verdict over our lives can be spoken over us in the present. Which means there is no fear of the day of judgment because the verdict has already come down. The former Archbishop of Sydney, uh, the late Marcus Lone, once said, and this is helpful to think about the beauty of justification. He said, if forgiveness tells us you may go, you're you're, you're free of liability, you're free of penalty, the, the debt is canceled. What justification tells us is you may come. You're entitled to all my love and presence. And I want you to notice verse 24. Pay careful attention to the words. We are justified by his grace as a gift. Or as some translations put it, freely by his grace. Now, you're a smart group of people here. You're like, that sounds kind of redundant. And you know what? It's because it is. Paul is making sure we don't miss the point. It's not a little bit of grace and a whole lot of our work that leads to our justification. And it's not even a whole lot of grace and a little bit of our work that leads to justification. It is by his grace as a gift, having absolutely nothing to do with our working for it. Paul's going to continue teasing this out in the next chapter when he talks about Abraham and he talks about David. But for now, you've got to take this in. Righteousness before God is by grace from A to Z. Justification is by grace from beginning to end. And the reason is, is that everything necessary to secure our justification was accomplished in Christ. Paul uses two words here for what Christ accomplished. The first is redemption and the second is propitiation. And we need to understand these if we're going to understand what is being said here. Redemption is a commercial term 
borrowed from the marketplace in the first century Greco-Roman world. And it, and it, and it referenced payment to secure the release of one who was held captive to the tyranny of another. So you'll see it used of slaves who were purchased and then set free. But this word redemption also has this rich Old Testament background. And if you were here in the fall when we went through uh, the book of Exodus, uh, you'll remember that this is what God did for Israel when he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He redeemed them. And prophets like Isaiah use the word to describe God's deliverance of Israel under captivity in Babylon. He redeemed them, Isaiah 43. But Paul is saying, but now a greater deliverance, a greater rescue has been accomplished in Christ Jesus. A rescue from the tyranny of sin and death. Jesus laid down his life for you. He experienced the tyranny of sin and death. And this secures an objective redemption. Substitution is at the heart of the gospel. How does, it, how does that work? Well, this is where the second word comes in. That God put Jesus, his son, forth as a propitiation by his blood. Now, this is fun. There's a whole lot of ink spilled over this word propitiation. And... Most all agree that Paul is making reference to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And in particular, uh, the mercy seat, which was the golden lid on the ark within the inner sanctuary of the temple. On the day of atonement, blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And people's sins were atoned for. What Paul is saying is, Jesus is the place of atonement. He is the place where God and sinners are reconciled. Previously, this action was hidden behind a veil where the priest went in. But now it is put on full display. And then by his blood, God's wrath is propitiated. And this is where it gets fun. Do you know what propitiation means? The turning away of wrath. Now, some people lose their minds right now. They, they say, that, well, that's a, that's a pagan notion, unfit for the Bible. But there is a world of difference between pagan notions of propitiation and Christian notion of what it is. There's a difference in why it's required. It's not because God is moody and inconsistent, right? And needs to be pacified. It's because he's holy. And he responds to sin and evil with absolute consistency. He's radically opposed to it. That's been Paul's point since chapter 1, verse 18. There's a difference in who makes the propitiation. It's not us with our sweets and vegetables trying to appease God. It's not us on our own initiative with our clever inventions. God himself declares the kind of sacrifice he requires, and he himself provides it. When you read the book of Leviticus, for example, you can read in chapter 17, verse 11, where God says, I have given this to you for atonement. When you read the story of Abraham, what does Abraham say? He says, God will provide the lamb. And there is a difference in what it ultimately is and does. It's not a bribe or a passy to calm God down. Like he's in an outrage, like here, God, you know, here's some blood for you, right? No, in the fullness of time, God fulfills all the symbols of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament in the sending of his own son to die for us. And the son did it willingly. 
out of love, the Father and the Son acting together for our rescue. See, Paul has already said the big problem is we are out of sorts with God. We are under his wrath. And now he is disclosing Jesus is the way out. And by the way, for those of you who um, maybe at times, and I, I have been there too, uh, turn our nose up at this. I want you to think about how often this comes up in your own life. When things are just a mess and chaotic and in disarray and you think, how do I get God not to be angry with me? And we have our plans. And the question is whether they're a good one. And you know what we discover? We're prone to paganism. We ignore Christ as God's gift to us. And what we start doing is trying to cut deals, make bargains, organize trade-offs. God, if you give me this, I'll do that for you. And you know what? God isn't interested in it at all. What he wants is for you and I to latch on to what he has provided in his son. Because he wants us to be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom he put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Why blood? No broken relationship is ever mended without sacrifice. You know that, right? There are sacrifices of time. There are sacrifices of emotional energy. Sometimes there's the paying down of debts that are owed. And even when you forgive, there is the cost you incur of suffering. The shape of the sacrifice is determined by the size of the offense. If the wages of sin is death, the sacrifice to heal the broken relationship, to mend it, must answer to that. The blood of Jesus answers to the serious thing that sin is. And the blood of Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice of love. And it's also the satisfaction of justice. You know, I don't know how many of you know this story, but in 1955, uh, Billy Graham was invited to speak to students at Cambridge University at Great St. Mary's Hall. And during the lead up, uh, people started writing letters to the London Times. They were upset that a fundamentalist Baptist preacher was going to speak to the best and brightest of the UK. And you know what? This really got to Billy Graham. It actually rattled him. So the first two nights that he was speaking, uh, he, he, he tried to quote all the philosophers and the intellectuals and tried to show himself as a studied man and uh, on top of it all and really sophisticated. And, and you, you know what happened? Nothing. It all fell flat. And so the third night, Billy Graham said, screw it, I'm just going to preach the cross. And there was a man there by the name of Dick Lucas, who later became a very powerful preacher in the UK. And this is what he writes about that third night. I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed chancel sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one leg and the chaplain of a college who was going to be a future bishop on the other. Both of these were very reputable men, but completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus. So dear Billy got up that night and he began at Genesis and he went right through the whole Bible and he talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. 
The blood was flowing all over the place everywhere for three quarters of an hour. And both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by the crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to stay behind and make a commitment to Christ. And that night, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed. Dick Lucas was one of them. And he later said that that night changed his life because he realized in Jesus' sacrifice, his sins were washed clean and justice had been completely satisfied. The work of Christ in the gospel is not only a demonstration of God's love. Paul will later make that abundantly clear. But it is also a demonstration of his justice, which is why Paul says God is both just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. The cross vindicates the justice of God. In the past, God overlooked sin in his divine and merciful forbearance, he says, but now he's judged it at the cross. The sins of the saints before Christ came were on a deferred payment plan, but now we see that all the costs were incurred by Christ. It was God's fixed intention that in the fullness of time, he would deal with sin through the death of his son. God doesn't set aside his justice. He turns it on himself to rescue us. At the cross, there is a genuine satisfaction of divine justice. It's good news. Because it leads to a genuine justification of all who trust in Jesus. And it is the greatest revelation of God's heart to us. Because he is our redemption and our propitiation. We can be justified. We can be right with God. How do we receive it? How does this become ours? And Paul makes it abundantly clear. By faith. Only by faith. By faith alone. You notice that three times in the space of five verses, Paul singles this out. He says, the righteousness of God comes, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God comes, verse 25, through propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. And then verse 26, God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. This is why the Protestant reformers insisted on the phrase sola fide, which is Latin for faith alone. Because they understood that it is through faith alone that we receive our justification. Justification is by grace alone. It is in Christ alone, received through faith alone. And if you've fallen asleep, please wake up and hear what I'm going to say next. Notice It is not faith in general, but faith in Jesus. It's not just faith in God. Yeah, I believe in God. It's faith in what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's not just faith in Jesus' teaching or example. He's a pretty good guy. It's faith in his blood. And it is not faith that saves us. It is Jesus who saves through faith. And this is so important to grasp, friends, because sometimes we think of faith as some kind of like perfect surrender that we achieve or some state of psychological certainty that always seems to elude us. 
But Paul is saying it is by faith so that it can be by grace and freely given. It is not the strength of your faith or the intensity of your feelings or the unwaveringness of your faith. It is the one in whom you place your faith that matters most. The late Tim Keller said, if you come to think that your belief is the cause of your salvation, you will stop looking at Christ and you will start looking at your faith. And when you see doubts, it will rattle you. When you don't feel it quite as clearly or excitedly, it will worry you. Faith is the eye that looks to him. It's the open hand that receives his free gift. It's the mouth that drinks his living water. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, British preacher of the last century said something like this. Trusting Jesus for your justification means you stop looking at what you once were. You stop looking at what you are now and you stop looking at what you hope to be. And you look entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ in his finished work. Justification by grace alone, in Christ alone, received through faith alone, is at the heart of the Christian faith. And it is unique among world religions. All systems of spirituality will teach some variation of self-salvation strategies. But only in Christianity is salvation received by grace through faith alone. And this has enormous implications for our lives. And that's the last thing I want to talk about. Uh, We could talk about this forever, but I want to highlight two things, two implications. This means the end of boasting and the beginning of love. Let's look at the end of boasting first. Notice what Paul says in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Now, if you don't understand what Paul is meaning here, you have to understand that our boasts is what makes us feel better than others. And we boast in our career. We boast in our accomplishments. We boast in our children sometimes. We boast in our prestige. We boast in our salary. We boast in the people we know. We boast that we're a good person, that we're not a racist, that we're not misogynistic. Maybe close to home for most of us, we boast in our morality and our religion. We're all on an I'm better than you mission. But the gospel puts an end to all of that. Our salvation is not because we are better. It is because we are loved. And that is so much better than being better. You know, it's fascinating how often Paul returns to this theme of boasting in his letters. It's like he knows it's our native tongue. We may not say it out loud, but we're boasting in our hearts, right? Lots going on in there. In fact, this used to be Paul's native tongue too. In Philippians uh, chapter 3, he gives us a little bit of his own autobiography. And uh, he's showing his resume. And this is what he says. I was a first-class citizen of Israel. I wasn't some latecomer, some convert. I was a member of the faithful tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, not the disreputable ones. I'm pure-blooded. I'm not a compromiser. I'm highly educated. I'm a scrupulous rule keeper. And I'm an activist to boot. He had an A++ on his spiritual report card. 4.0, 4.5. I know some of you are like, I I had a 4, 4.2. 4.5 in religiosity. And then one day he met Jesus. And you know what he said? 
All of that seemed like rubbish to him. No longer his boast. He shredded his spiritual resume for the greater joy of, and I quote, being found in him, that is Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And this radically rearranged his life. When he wrote the church of Galatia, the very end, chapter six, verse 14, he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross relativizes every other boast. And boasting in the cross is hardly boasting at all. It's worship. It's adoration. It's rest. Some of us don't know how badly we need this in our lives. We are like a toddler turning red-faced and angry, running from nap time. Fighting the very thing we need because that feels like death, but it is life. And we don't realize it until we've crashed and burned or collapsed in exhaustion and get the rest we so badly need. To feel the rest of the cross, you have to let it put to death your pride. And that means the end of boasting. But you know what else it means? It means the beginning of love. See, when when you stop boasting in yourself, your achievements, what you've done, you start learning to love people instead of use them or hate them. When you find your acceptance and approval and righteousness in what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, you stop using people to try to get that acceptance and approval or climb over them to show them you're better. And instead, you start loving people for Jesus' sake. When boasting comes to an end and love begins, walls between us start coming down. I want you to notice how Paul teases out the social, not just the personal implications of a gospel of justification by faith. He says in verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? This is important because this is a, 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 a tension in the Roman church and it had a long history. Jews and Gentiles had a history of hatred and hostility. Jews thought Gentiles were dirty and unclean and Gentiles thought Jews were freaks and weirdos. Each side took pride in their own tribe and culture and nothing drives hostility like pride. But the the gospel dismantles our pride and makes room for love. All who belong to Jesus belong to the same family and should eat at the same table. And this has been God's intention all along. When he called Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you. And through your seed, I'm going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And you know what Paul is saying? He's saying the covenant with Abraham has been filled, fulfilled in Christ. He is the true seed of Abraham. Through him, the blessing of salvation extends to everyone who believes without exception, without distinction. Our cultural and ethnic differences are relativized by the grace of God in the gospel. And the gospel becomes the ground of our unity amidst our diversity. Think about it, Jew and Gentile together in one family, right? Anglo-Americans and Anglo-Saxons, right? The, the, the Hispanics, Asians, Laotians, Cambodians, rednecks and hillbillies and people who live in 90210 zip code. 
all united in a single family by faith, learning to love one another. The gospel that makes us right with him is meant to be worked out and making us right with one another. And sadly, that hasn't been recognized because the tensions are everywhere. And it's not just black and white in American history. That's also in South Africa and in China, right? You have uh, the Shuang and the Hui at odds with the Han. In Fiji, you have the indigenous Fijians, you know, at odds with the Indo-Fijians. On and on and on we could go, but the, but the grace of God in the gospel, it deconstructs and dismantles all caste systems. The world is always dividing. Rich versus poor, men versus women, black versus white versus Asian versus Latino. The cross doesn't say there are no differences. What it says is whatever differences there are, they are now resituated in a new system where we serve one another in love. Justification by faith leads to love. Genuine love. And love is the whole point of God's law. As Jesus said, love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is important because some might say, okay, this whole time Paul's been dissing on the law. It's no good. God got rid of it. But Paul says, verse 31, by no means, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This topic's going to surface again and again in this letter. But let me say this for now. The law has done its job if it has exposed us and led us to Christ. Because it's pointing to him. Both in exposing our need and through its symbols and patterns showing what Christ did to achieve our salvation. But guess what? When that gets a hold of us, Christ by his spirit actually begins to enable us to lovingly obey and obediently love. And as Paul will later say, love is the fulfilling of the law. See, if you think you're going to be saved by the rules, by the law, you're going to end up hating them because they will torment you and accuse you when you see how they expose you. But the one who knows they are saved apart from the law will actually love it because it shows them the way of love. Let me close with this. I was, I was talking to a, a woman in our congregation many years ago, and she told me, she said, I've spent most of my life trying to prove myself. And I've been miserable and hateful and envious. But now I'm beginning to realize there is nothing left to prove. I am justified by his grace as a gift that has changed everything for me. When you understand that you are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, guess what? The power of God is unleashed in your life. Every religion requires a righteous life. Follow the rules, do the things, get it done, produce a righteous life and give it to God. And sadly, This is found throughout North American churches too. Do this, do that, and then you'll be a good Christian. Then you'll have God's favor. And at some point you realize, I didn't do what they were telling me to do. The gospel crashes into our lives and says, you know, they're right. You need a righteous life. But you don't produce a righteous life and give it to God. Jesus produced the righteous life and gives it to you. There is a righteousness that doesn't go 
from you to God. It is a righteousness that comes from God and goes to you. Not only are all our sins laid on him, his beauty, his glory, his perfection is given to us. And the father loves us as he loves his own son. You know what that means? It means there's hope. There's hope for you and me. It doesn't doesn't matter if you're addicted to meth, if you're trapped in porn, if you're eaten up with envy, if you're wasting away in bitterness right now. The gospel can heal and forgive and make new. You wonder why? Because the gospel is real rest. It's rest for the weary churchgoer. It's rest for the trying and failing again and again and again. It's rest for the mom and dad trying to make their kids perfect and their marriage perfect and their yard perfect. And everything perfect and looking perfect. Because it tells us you can lay your head on your pillow at night and know you are right with him. You can know your father loves you. And I know some of you right now saying, well, this sounds like a recipe for producing lazy Christians. Far from it. It produces humble, grateful people. And every other way creates burnouts and dropouts. If you don't build your confidence on the work of Christ for you in the gospel, you're going to build it on something else and it will feel fragile and vulnerable and losable because it is. And you'll spend all your energy trying to defend it and guard it relentlessly. But the big thing is, is you'll never learn how to love. But when you see what God in Christ has done for you, When you realize that you can be justified by his grace as a gift and you can have the final verdict over your life pronounced over you now, the power of God gets unleashed in your life. And it spells the end of boasting and the beginning of love. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, um, for the way that, Lord, it challenges us. And we ask that you would forgive our stony and hard hearts, Lord, who keep wanting to say there must be some way else, some way I can make my own way, some way that doesn't involve the dismantling of my pride, the emptying of my hands. But there isn't. And Lord, would you help us to see that? And not only see that, but recognize the beauty and the joy and the rest that comes from finding our righteousness in Christ. Lord, we need that to go to work on us. We need that to land on our hearts. We need that to heal and forgive and make new. And so, Lord, we ask uh, that you would help us to stop boasting in ourselves and to start resting in what Jesus has done and that you would bear the fruit of love in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.